Gather ye rosebuds while ye may, old time is still a flying, and this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. Upon realizing the fact of their mortality, people typically respond in one of two completely opposite ways. One common response exhibited by Robert Herrick, the uh, 17th century poet of Gather Ye Rosebuds fame is, I'm going to die sometime, so I'd better get a move on. But equally often the response is, if I'm going to die, what's the point of doing anything? These are two very different attitudes toward the very same fact, mortality. When the the very same fact can give rise to such widely divergent reactions, philosophers and, of course, other smart people become interested. Now, in the former view, the gather ye rosebuds view, life has value despite the fact of death. The realization of impending death is simply a spur to get going, uh, get going on the things that make life worthwhile. We each have a deadline, a limited amount of time to squeeze in as much of the good life as we can. So gather ye rosebuds now. Don't wait around, for neither you nor the rosebuds will be here forever. This is also the view paraphrased in the words of a woman uh, I know. Uh, She has this bumper sticker on her car, quote, so many men, so little time, unquote. or the academic's version, so many books, so little time. The point can be taken universally. Of course, we can each change the words to suit our preferences. But the idea here is that mortality means you have to get things done. Your awareness of death is seen in part as a negative motivation not to waste time, to get going on the good stuff. You don't want to reach 70 years of age and say, what if I had, and then realize you hadn't because you were too worried or lazy or you had just gotten into a groove and let things drift. This is not to say that you suddenly embrace life because you suddenly find death to be something to be afraid of, right? It's not a horror at the nothingness of death that, uh, here I'm thinking of a tragic existentialist like Miguel de Unamuno. They've argued it's that negative horror, the nothingness of death is what gives life meaning. And the claim here is that instead, what the awareness of death does is just appreciate and heighten your appreciation of the value of the limited time that you have available. Life is too valuable to sit around and just watch it slip by. But for the other view, the the what's the use view, the same fact of impending death is taken to wipe out any sense that a meaningful life is possible. Now, on this view, the implicit premise is that, well, maybe only immortality could make life worthwhile. Mortality simply makes life meaningless, right? We're just going to die. So what's the value of anything? So, for example, consider the 17-year cicadas, a kind of locust-type uh, type of creature. They, uh, apparently, they start their lives as eggs laid underground where they stay buried and unhatched in larval state for 17 years. And then during the spring of the 17th year, they come up out of the ground, they grow up into the trees, and then for a brief and frenzied bout of reproduction, after which they lay the next generation of legs, and then they die. Then the next generation of laid eggs uh, stays unhatched and buried underground for 17 years, and then the cycle is repeated. Now, is this what we call meaningful life? Now, suppose you were a philosopher for cicadas, you'd say, you know, what's the use? And 
Drawing the analogy, we humans really are no different on this view, except that our mortal lives are extended for a few more decades. Uh, even those of us who do accomplish a lot, we die, and all of our creations, however magnificent, eventually crumble. So the argument runs, everything is meaningless. Here's a quote you might recognize, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow creeps this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time, and all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out, out, brief candle, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Those are Shakespeare's words, if not necessarily his sentiments, but others echo those sentiments. All we are is dust in the wind. Going back to my youth, the musical group Kansas pointed that out in the 1970s. So life is transient, and therefore it has no meaning. But then if life has no meaning, we're just a step away from affirming with Camus that the question of suicide is the only important philosophical question. I mean, what difference should it make if you die now or 20 or 40 years from now? Either way, you end up dead forever. If only the transience of life were eliminated, if only the possibility of death were eliminated. Now, the Gather Ye Rosebuds advocates, they hear all of this, and they typically ask in puzzled tones of voice, well, what on earth are you talking about? The world is a beautiful place. Life is intrinsically wonderful, so don't just throw it away. Make as much of it as you can. You only go around once. Life is too precious to miss a single minute of. The fact that we're mortal is not as important as the fact that we're alive now. Of course, immortality could be great, not because it would make life worth living, but rather because it would give us more time to do more or to get more or enjoy more of those things that do, in fact, make life worth living. So we have here a fundamental opposition expressed in completely opposite reactions to a single fact. And this raises our question. Would immortality change anything as, say, those who say that mortality makes life meaningless? And would it be worth it? Is the amount of time one has to live one's life the fundamental question to ask when asking what makes or what would make life worth living? Now, my plan uh, is to set up a thought experiment, and the scenario is quite simple. Suppose you were immortal, but limited to continued existence as a human being on earth. Would it be worth it? Now, how do we even answer this question? Well, in preparing this uh, episode, I started as is normal in philosophy by doing some field research. You know, I posed the scenario to some people and asked them what they thought as it happened. Most of those I asked were young men and women of college age, and invariably, instead of an answer, I got a kind of a worried question in return. Well, at what age would I have to live this immortal life? Would I have to have the body of a 110-year-old, or could I have that of, say, a 25-year-old athlete? Uh, could, I, could I keep my present body and age, or you know, horror of horrors, would I start off young and then slowly, ever so slowly, wither away as the centuries ticked by, but without ever quite withering away into nothingness? 
So if this is a concern, I responded uh, for the purposes of this thought experiment. Suppose that you would retain your faculties and potencies, that you wouldn't deteriorate appreciably, either physically or mentally, that basically you could live forever in your prime at whatever age you consider your prime to be. Now, that sounded pretty good to them, my uh, college and university age students. But then another question came up. Uh, would you have to eat? And I answered this question. Yes. My experiments, so I get to set the rules, I want to make this a conditional immortality. It's conditional upon you continuing to fulfill all the normal requirements of human life, including eating, sleeping, keeping warm, and and so on. Another question uh, came up, uh, would the cows and the chickens and the other animals and plants species be immortal too and thus not be able to die? Because if so, then you wouldn't be able to eat anything and our supposed immortality would uh, be in a contradiction or uh, end rather quickly. Now, to nip this one in the bud, I replied, for purposes of this thought experiment, suppose that only the humans right, would be immortal. Questions continued. Well, what if we immortal human beings continue to reproduce and produce still more immortal beings and the world became overpopulated? Here's my response. Well, suppose you found some way to solve this potential problem, settling other planets, birth control, whatever. Our focus, uh, I want to keep it in this thought experiment, is on what makes life worth living and whether immortality has anything to do with it. So let's set aside these other sorts of variables and, and considerations. Now, one consideration, though, I do want to raise is regarding any sort of unconditional immortality, because I put that conditional mortality phrase out there a little bit ago. I've got this word. If humans were unconditionally immortal, that is to say, if humans were beings who could not die no matter what, would they even be the same sort of being. I mean, I ask this with the following in mind. If the alternative of life or death does not face a being in any way whatsoever, can that creature have value? Can it judge things as good or bad, positive or, or negative? Think of it this way. Would uh, such an unconditionally immortal being be any different than an indestructible robot. I'm, I'm reminded here of the famous analogical argument that Ayn Rand made in the Objectivist essay. If there is an undestructible or indestructible robot, and literally it cannot die or be destroyed or go out of existence, then nothing can harm it. So nothing can be bad to it. And conversely, it has nothing to achieve. So nothing could be good to it. So for any such an unconditionally immortal creature, There'd be no limits, no framework for a value system to get started. And if there's no value system, then the question of whether life is good or bad, worth it or not worth it, valuable or not, seems to become meaningless. The creature just exists, period. So I, I think values are only possible if one faces in some form a life or death alternative. So if one is unconditionally immortal, no values would, would be possible. So all I wish to do in this thought experiment is lift the limits of our biological clock. Suppose that we can be immortal, provided we choose to continue to live and to do the things that continued human existence requires, like getting enough food and rest. But if we choose at any point not to live any longer, we can put an end to ourselves. Everything about human life is exactly the same, except that there is no set time one has available to live. So let's call this conditional immortality. In his book, Entrepreneurial Living, 
15 stories of innovation, risk and achievement, and one story of abject failure. Professor Stephen Hicks has put together a series of interviews with entrepreneurs from six different countries and seven US states to explore the adventure and the hard-headedness of business. In this book, Hicks explores what makes for entrepreneurial success and failure. To what extent does success depend on the key decisions, ideas, persistent action or character traits? How does one's business life fit into one's overall life? And how does one even define success? Our belief is that we can always learn from the accomplishments and setbacks of others. The life stories from others can be informative, cautionary and inspirational as we each strive to more fully realize our own potentials and achieve our own goals. The 16 entrepreneurs featured in this book are widespread geographically as well as in the range of their endeavors, from sports to education, to fashion, to technology, to finance, to advertising, to architecture, to cosmetics, and more. Observation of success and failure is often the best way to avoid pitfalls, learning from the mistakes of others to get on the pathway to success. This book doesn't disappoint, providing engaging and useful insights from the accounts of 16 entrepreneurs whose reflections are both personal to them and timeless in their significance for the rest of us. Pick up your copy of Entrepreneurial Living, 15 Stories of Innovation, Risk and Achievement and One Story of Abject Failure by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College Podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. All right. So imagine now you are immortal. Isn't it great? Well, it's not always been thought to be obvious. So let's consider what I'm going to call potential problem number one. And I'm going to indicate this one by means of a quotation from novelist John Steinbeck, a man who has thought a lot about things and has come to some definite conclusions. Now, what follows is an excerpt from a commencement address. It was uh, written to be delivered to young people just graduating from college and about to go out into the world. So Steinbeck, accordingly, is trying to impart to these young people the most valuable advice he can muster. And here's what he, what he wrote, quote, you are going out into the world and it is a frightened, neurotic, gibbering mess. Yes, my young friends, you are going to take your bright and shining faces into a jungle, but a jungle where all the animals are insane. You haven't the strength for vice. That takes energy, and all the energy of this time is needed for fear. That takes energy, too. And what energy is left over is needed for running down the rabbit holes of hatred to avoid thought. The rich hate the poor and taxes. The young hate the draft. The Democrats hate the Republicans, and everybody hates the Russians. Children are shooting their parents, and parents are drowning their children when they think they can get away with it. No one can plan one day ahead because all certainties are gone. Continuing the quotation, if you work very hard and are lucky and have a good tax man, then when you are 50, if your heart permits, you and your sagging wife can make a tired and bored but first-class trip to Europe to stare at the works of dead people who were not afraid. But you won't see it. You'll be too anxious to get home to your worrying. Now, I think this is a good example of what philosophy can do to you if you don't get it right. But carrying on this theme, the playwright Berthold Brecht wrote, quote, 
The man who laughs is the one who has not heard the terrible news. Well, what is the terrible news? Well, it's the same news that Steinbeck wanted to tell the graduating college students. Fundamentally, the world is hell. We live in a nasty universe. Human beings are incompetent, misfits, neurotic, and we all are, quite rightly, damned scared. So you might as well face up to it, accept your lot, insulate yourself as best you can from life's messes, and hope you die a relatively painless death. Now, suppose we put two, Steinbeck and Brecht, whether immortality would be worth it. I mean, their response would no doubt be, are you kidding us? We don't see why any amount of life is worth living, let alone an infinite amount of it. Life is pain, depression, and horror. Now, this certainly poses a problem for the immortal life. I mean, how could one tolerate a neurotic mess forever? Wouldn't 70 years or so be quite, quite enough? So what are we supposed to think about this sort of challenge? Well, if we don't agree, then how should we respond to such extreme pessimism? This is a question I'm raising now only as a teaser, for I would like to set it aside temporarily in order to pursue our main objective, which is to find out exactly what value immortality would add to life, supposing that it is possible to value life. So let us suppose that we're not in this pessimistic tradition, for such pessimism kind of negates the very question that's the focus of of this episode. So suppose... If you don't already believe it, so, you know, some sort of Steinbeckian pessimism is a, a kind of philosophical illness and that you uh, do find, or at least you can conceive of some positive value to life on earth. And the question is going to be, could this positive value in life, whatever it is, be extended over eternity? Potential problem number two. Well, uh, what would you, in fact, do with all of that time? The uh, comedic often, uh, with a kind of dark undercurrent often also, though uh, Mark Twain reminded of a story he wrote, a short story called Extracts from Captain Stormfield's Visit to Heaven. Twain satirically characterizes heaven as a place really of uh, eternal boredom, right? Folks just kind of hang around and play harps. Is that what immortality means? Is it all just like, you know, standing around on fluffy white clouds wearing a, a halo and playing a harp? You know, Captain Stormfield, who's uh, mistakenly been sent to heaven for a while, you know, he gives it his best shot for a while. After all, that's what you're supposed to do in heaven. But after about 16 increasingly boring hours, he questioned a neighbor about, uh, you know, who'd been doing the exact same thing. You know, now tell me, is this to go on forever? Ain't there anything else for a change? Unquote. Now, immortality here is conceived of as a static state. You don't really do anything, or, or if you do, it's been within a very limited range of activity. So, after a while, there are no new experiences, and you start to get bored. An eternity of boredom, I think it is safe to say, would not be worth it. Now, whether one is immortal in heaven or on earth, the same potential problem of boredom arises. And thus the same question, how does one prevent boredom from making immortality worthless? Now, I think this is an important clue. We have two facts here. The fact that boredom lessens or negates the value of life, and the fact that boredom can result from doing nothing or from doing some limited number of things over and over again, together imply that life is worth living only if there are new things to do. 
only if there is a possibility for growth, a potential for discovering new experiences, or for enriching current experiences, does life remain valuable. The moment one stops growing, a wise man once said, is the moment one starts dying. Stagnation for an organism means, at best, boredom, at worst, death. To put this positively, life is essentially growth. Another way of putting this point is to say that if life is essentially value achievement, setting goals, it's planning a course of action, executing the plan, overcoming obstacles, and then hopefully enjoying the process all the while, and then achieving the goal and savoring the beauty or usefulness or pleasureness, pleasurableness rather, of the result. So the values to be achieved certainly need not be limited to any one range of items. You know, they can include increasing your knowledge, enriching your friendships, experiencing art, developing your career, and, and so on. Now, supposing all of this is true, then the question for our immortal life is, is there in principle a finite limit to this? That's to say a cap on how much you can grow, a limit to the number of new experiences it is possible to have. And here I think the answer is yes. The universe is huge, but say physics and philosophy, it is finite. There's only so much of it, and this is the problem. If there's only so much of it, then there's only so much that you can do. And then what do you do when you've done it all? And now you know, try to imagine the scales of time here. Right? You've taught physiology at the graduate university level for 16,000 years. And after that, you won Wimbledon Tennis Championship for the 754th time. And after you've gained and lost 1,204 fortunes on Wall Street, after you've composed pretty much every possible piece of music for a piano with 88 key, and then you did the same thing for the harpsichord. Now, we're talking about billions of years here, and that's a big leap from the usual 75 to 80-year lifespan that we think in terms of. But after you've done absolutely, or at least pretty much everything, and maybe you've had a great time doing it, there are no more goals. And if there are no more goals, then what motivates you to do anything? Nothing. And if you do nothing, what's left except to be bored? This problem, uh, as I think of it, to the limits to growth, not just physical, but psychological, and the ensuing boredom can be tailored a bit. So if there are these limits to growth and new experiences, then there is certainly a limit to positive growth and experiences. So maybe after you've done everything fine and good, right? you've been a deep sea diver, a poet, a professor of 19th century romantic literature, an Austrian pastry chef, a space explorer. Well, then I think to avoid boredom, you would be driven to start working on the bad and maybe even the evil. Perhaps you would set out to be a peeping Tom, 
And then when that became boring, maybe you could try your hand as a con man in Rio de Janeiro. And when that begins to pale, then you move to Montreal and you give the police a hard time as a serial killer. And then when that loses its edge just for kicks, you, uh, you know, you start, uh, I don't know, whipping people randomly on the street until they throw you in jail, right? So the point is that we are left with the specter of an immortal life leading us to exhaust all the positive possibilities that make life worth living, and then forcing us to seek out the evil, the nasty, and the unpleasant just in order to avoid boredom. And this is kind of an unsavory outcome. So life remains worth living only at the cost of embracing evil and destruction. But even then, right, once all of the possibilities for new experiences of evil have been exhausted, after you've become kind of the consummate criminal and immoralist in every possible way, the identical problem of boredom once again looms large. Now, setting aside the problem of resorting to new experiences, any new experiences, including evil ones, what happens when you reach the limit, right? Whatever number of billions or trillions of years it takes. There are no new experiences. There are no new challenges. No growth is possible. There's nothing to do that you haven't done a hundred or a thousand times before. And so boredom sets in. Now this, I think, would be a state worse than death. Death, at least, is a neutral, a nothing, a zero. While boredom is negative. Boredom is painful. This is also a boredom you can't do anything about as a, you know, opposed to or compared to the garden variety of boredoms that we encounter nowadays, most of which are, are our own fault and under our control to change. This kind of boredom I'm talking about after billions or trillions of years, this is boredom with a capital B. So at this point, the point of supreme, irreversible, painful boredom, death would become preferable to life. Your immortality becomes a burden. One uh, aspect of the myth of Sisyphus, particularly in in Camus' uh, retelling of it, becomes true. You would have absolutely no motivation to roll the boulder up the hill one more time. Friedrich Nietzsche was famous for his statement that God is dead and his provocative account of master and slave moralities and also for the fact that Adolf Hitler and the Nazis claimed that Nietzsche was one of their great inspirations. Were the Nazis right to do so, or did they misappropriate Nietzsche's philosophy? Professor Stephen Hicks's concisely written book, Nietzsche and the Nazis, based on the 2006 documentary, corrects many widespread misconceptions about Nietzsche, giving a fascinating and easy-to-understand analysis of Nietzsche's work, asking and answering a number of questions, such as what were the key elements of Hitler and the National Socialist political philosophy? How did the Nazis come to power in a nation as educated and civilized as Germany? What was Friedrich Nietzsche's philosophy? The philosophy of live dangerously, and that which does not kill us makes us stronger? And to what extent did Nietzsche's philosophy provide a foundation for the horrors perpetrated by the Nazis? Professor Hicks demonstrates his mastery of this subject using quotes and critical analysis that prove his points and show the true linkage between Nietzsche and the Nazis and how philosophical ideas move the world. Get your copy of Nietzsche and the Nazis by Stephen Hicks on Amazon.com today. And while you're online, please leave a review for the Open College podcast hosted by Hicks himself on iTunes or Stitcher. Now back to the podcast. 
Now, supposing you reach this point, I think you would want the capacity to opt out at the moment of realization of impending eternal boredom, literally everything. You realize you've done everything. You would want the power to end your life. Now, unless, of course, there's some way to avoid the boredom. Here's a possibility. On, uh, I think, pretty much any theory of the nature of the mind, there is, at the very least, held to be some sort of intimate connection between the mind and the brain. So in some form or other, our memories, our knowledge, our characteristic emotions and thought patterns, in short, everything that makes us, each of us, a unique individual personality, uh, all of these things are dependent upon the physical brain. The brain, however, is a finite physical organ. So however much it can retain in memory, it can only retain so much. Now, I have no idea how much that is, but I would venture a guess that it is much less than what it would take to know and retain absolutely everything that can be known and experienced. And that means that before you could reach the end of all of the possible new experiences and challenges that you could try, you would reach the point at which in order to store and retain new experiences, you'd have to forget some of the old ones. So if we think of, you know, by analogy, the, the, if you think of the, you know, the brain is kind of like a huge hard disk drive. Once it's filled up, the only way to store new information is to write over the old information, which means that the old information is lost. And this, of course, could be our saving grace with respect to boredom, for it opens up the following possibility. After you've done everything and you're looking for something interesting to do, there will be things that you've already done, but you've forgotten having done them. And since you've forgotten having done them, you can therefore approach and do them again with all of the zest and freshness of the first time. So maybe even if you already spent as a young pup back in your early millions, you know, you did 22,000 years of learning everything there is to know about volcanoes, you've forgotten all about volcanoes. And so now volcanoes can be incredibly interesting again. So could the built-in limits to our brain capacity prevent an immortal life from becoming boring? Another potential problem arises, I think, at this point. So what if at some point along the line, you discovered that this forgetting was happening? Perhaps during your, I don't know, three million year career as a neurophysiologist, you found out exactly what the limits of the human brain are, and you found out that you have already lived longer and experienced more than your brain could possibly have retained. This would mean that you must have forgotten things, that some major portions of your life are no longer accessible to you. And this would open up in your mind a pretty big worry, potentially. Whatever it is that you're doing right now and perhaps enjoying seemingly for the very first time, uh, maybe you've already done it a thousand times before, but you forgot all about it. And this realization, I think, would start to take the edge off the pleasure of whatever it is that you are doing right now. So here there is a parallel to uh, how one reacts to philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche's concept of the eternal recurrent. If the cycle of world history repeats itself over and over again in the exact same pattern forever, if, for example, you've actually listened to this podcast that I'm now performing right now, you've listened to it a jillion times before, only you don't remember the other times. 
And you will, in fact, read it a jillion times or listen to it a jillion times again in the future. Then a jillion times again. Then so on without end. Coming to know that this pattern is going on would, I think, detract from whatever enjoyment that you're getting out of this particular portion of the cycle. So then what you come to realize is that this new experience, new in quotation marks now, isn't genuinely new. You come to realize it only seems new because you've forgotten about all the other times. So if you discovered that this necessary forgetting was happening, how much would it detract? Well, I don't know. But it is a counter problem or the solution to the boredom problem. And probably once you discovered that you were forgetting major portions of your life, for fear of repeating yourself, you would start devising other ways to store the information about your past life. Right? We love keeping scrapbooks right? and, and, and photo albums and so on, other than in your brain. That is to say, you would keep your past life in a computer or in a diary or whatever, and then before uh, embarking on a new career or what seems like a new career to you in quasar physics, now that you're 13 trillion years old, you would check your computer or your diary to see, oops, I already did that before. And if you did in fact find out that you had done that before and you spent 211,000 years doing it, would you want to do it again, even if you've forgotten about it? What if you couldn't find a single thing to do? other than the things that you had forgotten having done, but had done them nonetheless. And again, eventually you would reach this point, and the same abyss of eternal boredom would confront you again, and you would have a choice to do again the things that you know you've already done but forgotten, or to decide that the only new experience worth having is a genuinely new experience and not just one that you happen to have forgotten about, and that therefore you would rather stop your life right there. Now that choice is a long way away in the future, and it's not obvious to me at least which choice is preferable, or even whether the same choice would be preferable to every conditionally immortal person. However, for our purposes, the situation gives rise to this choice. Right? It serves to sharpen up, I think, our initial question about the value of the immortal life. What if, in the context of the boredom problem, what if we now ask those who feel that only immortality would make life worth living? And here's the question for them. What exactly would make the immortal life worth living? living? What exactly does the mortal life lack that you think makes it meaningless? And the answer would have to be along the lines of pointing out that if you were immortal, you could continue to grow and learn and enjoy the manifold activities that life has to offer. That such growth is what makes life valuable. That's the lesson that boredom teaches us. But this is not a satisfactory answer to me because it's the same one that's given by those who think that life has value even without immortality. So why then is the fact that humans are mortal a problem if, in any case, it is growth that makes life worth living? And growth is possible whether you are immortal or mortal. Because the answer comes back, well, possibly, well, mortality, mortality rather, means that at some point this growing is going to stop. One eventually dies. So one cannot grow forever. So why even start? 
only, in other words, the capacity for infinite growth on this position, it seems, would make any growth worthwhile. That is also what considering the problem of boredom teaches us. We are finite, reality is finite, and that's a fact. So, immortal or mortal, there is always going to be a finite limit to growth. Thus, what, what makes life valuable can't be cashed out in terms of an infinite capacity for growth. And if this is the case, then it cannot be that having an infinite amount of time available, that's to say some sort of immortal life, is what makes life worth living. An infinite amount of time would only give you more time to do those things that make life worth living in the first place. But that is to say life is worth living in the first place, that life has value independently of the amount of time one has available to live. So for actually mortal creatures then, the point that I'm groping toward here has to be to recognize that the time available to each of us is necessarily limited, to accept the fact that that's the way life is, and not to let that fact interfere with our enjoyment of the positive values that life has to offer. The moral has to be, in other words, not to be trapped and paralyzed in the attitude. And here I'm thinking of uh, Thomas Hardy's Jude the Obscure novel from the 1800s, uh, late 1800s, I believe, extraordinarily pessimistic piece, but there's a young boy who uh, is already quite pessimistic and seems uh, uh, jaded about any possible meaning to life. And he's trying to explain to his bewildered parents, you know, the reasons for his crippled sense of life with these words. And he says, quote, I am very, very sorry, mother and father, but please don't mind. I can't help it. I should like the flowers very, very much if I didn't keep on thinking that they'd all be withered in a few days. End of quotation. But whether your life is going to be 75 years long or 200 years or several millennia, the principle is still the same. Time considerations are at the very least of secondary import, if not irrelevant to the value of life. So this is, I think, where, again, we should come back to the Steinbeckian pessimism and its challenge. Why should we think life worth living at all? The pessimist reports, if life is just, you know, essentially futile suffering and defeat. Immortality and boredom are not the real problems of life. According to this position, futility and pain are. And of course, this has been a dominating theme for the past century or more now in the works of all of the great pessimists, uh, particularly in literature. Thomas Hardy, Albert Camus, uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky, some moods and then Anton Chekhov. So here we have to then confront the question, you know, is life useless suffering and defeat? Now this, I think, is uh, probably the point at which, as with all fundamental philosophical starting points, one either agrees or not, and there's probably nothing more that can be said when dealing with adult people whose fundamental sense of life has already been formulated and shaped and uh, become part of their second nature. If you think that life is better than death, but your interlocutor can't see the point, that what can you say to convince this person? 
Right? You can always point to X, Y, and Z. You know, nature is beautiful. I have loving friends, uh, romantic lovers, family is enormously rewarding. Advances in technology are exciting. Exciting. I like solving prob- uh, puzzles. Look at all this magnificent, beautiful art, exploring the world. But if you go through the list and that leaves your interlocutor kind of fundamentally indifferent and unconvinced, well, what more can be said? There is no value kind of outside of life that makes it good. And if the values that you see within life are not also seen as worthwhile by your pessimist, then there's no argumentative recourse left. The only thing possible is to just affirm your fundamental values, the ones that you find uh, that living involves, and then just go your separate ways. When he claims, as pessimists ultimately do, that he just finds value to be an empty concept. You can only then forge your own values and and seek them seek them out now i do think with gather ye rosebuds herrick that each of us mortals should get out there and gather as many rosebuds as we may that any amount of life is preferable to none that human life is the most precious thing in the world but it is because what makes life precious is that it allows for growth for development and change for constantly having new worlds to seek It's for this reason that I don't think immortality would be worth it. So barring some satisfactory solution to the big problem of boredom, immortality would have to become a burden at some point. And then after having had enough time to do everything worthwhile, and knowing that you've done it, having the capacity to bow out would, I think, be essential. But until you do bow out, under whatever circumstances that happens, gather ye rosebuds. Well, then of course, the next question for each of us to take up is, well, which rosebuds? And it is here, I think, that ethical philosophy really gets down to business in the minds and and lives of each of us as individuals. But let me close with uh, another famous poet, uh, some final lines from Andrew Marvell, to his coy mistress, one of the great poems of all time. And I think it speaks in its close, directly to our theme. Now let us sport while we may, and now rather like amorous birds of prey, rather at once our time devour than languish in his slow-chapped power. Let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball and tear our pleasure with rush-rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus. Though we cannot make our son stand still, yet we will make him run. Now that, I think, is the ideal. So my answer to the question of uh, the episode, immortality worth it? I'd say no, but a billion years would be great. Great. 